Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam. On this episode of the Smart Home Show, Richard and I discuss two interesting aspects of smart home device pricing. From the rise of a new set of companies going after low price solutions at high volumes, to a deep discussion on what makes up the cost of a smart home device and what drives pricing in the marketplace. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Adam Justice, from ConnectSense. Today, we'll be talking about the cost of smart home products and services and diving into how some of them are inexpensive, some of them are expensive, and what contributes to that. But before we get into the smart home talk, I have a question for Adam to start the show. Adam, I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of TV, probably more now than I did when I was a kid. But I'm curious, when you were growing up, what was your favorite TV show? So, uh, kid of the 80s and 90s here, but uh, <laughs> definitely my my favorite TV series growing up had to be The Simpsons. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, I just remember early 90s being... It, it almost being a little bit like, oh, I don't know, like there was this whole controversy about The Simpsons and whether or not parents should let their kids watch it. So there was something a little bit like, right, you know, naughty about uh, being able to watch The Simpsons. But even like in uh, like episode reruns and stuff like that, that was constantly on before dinner, you know, they would rerun The Simpsons. Um, so we were constantly watching, you know, some of those earlier episodes and pretty fun here um recently first kicking and screaming and then you know actually agreeing to it i got my oldest son who's nine to watch uh the simpsons and he's a huge baseball kid so we watched an episode mm. uh i think called homer at the bat which uh he was really entertained by so i believe the full simpsons catalog is going to be part of disney plus so right now there's like this weird i think it's in the fx app where you can watch them. Um, I also have a bunch of them on DVD, which I deeply regret paying money for. But I'm excited about that being in the Disney Plus uh, and be, it being a lot easier to watch those uh, going forward. Yeah, it's for, it's funny. I forgot all about the Fox catalog potentially also being available in Disney Plus. So I'm curious to see which pieces of that they pick and include there. I'm already in i've signed up for the three-year advance purchase i did the same yeah all right well let's start talking a little bit about the cost of smart home products and services and specifically 
I think one of the things that we have seen over the last couple of years is this trend of companies starting to introduce products at ridiculously low prices. Probably the first most well-known example of this is the Wise Camera, which you can still pick up for around 20 bucks for basically that initial Wise Camera. I never bought one, Adam. Did you ever get one? I have never bought one, no. I know a lot of people who have them, and they say that they're great. You know, they eventually added connectivity with people's assistants and IFTTT now, I believe. So they are becoming a part of people's smart homes. And that company continues to introduce products at really low prices, like sensors, although I've heard the sensors aren't really that good. Uh, they have a newer camera. People are still waiting for an announcement for a wise cam. And then I think the other major disruptors that immediately come to mind are Ring's announcement last year that they were going to be offering a $200 security system with monitoring for $10 a month, which basically just blows everyone away. Yeah, for sure. And then the other being IKEA coming out with their thread-free lighting system and their home smart ecosystem that will be including blinds later this year and other products coming. Those are priced much, much lower than other companies are typically doing. You know, Ring is continuing to come out with low priced products. Amazon is coming out with their own branded products, relatively low, low priced. Again, another Amazon company now, but Blink had cameras and introduced a doorbell that they never came out with, but they were planning on something like a crazy $99 price point on that. And all of these products seem to be pretty well received. I think you could debate on the IKEA stuff. I know people have said that they've had some problems with some of the IKEA products particularly the new really inexpensive plug has been problematic for people. But otherwise, you know, these, these are kind of disruptive to the market. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely has caught my attention. And, and being that we're involved in the plug space and, you know, we have something that's not on the low, low end of this, this market. You know, when somebody like Wise comes in and offers $15 for two smart plugs... You know, I just don't know how to compete with that. And right. I think I've heard similar things to you. There are people that are happy with this stuff. Um, but then there's also people who are like, uh, you know, one of our friends on Twitter said, you know, with the door sensor that he got a notification like five minutes late. It's like, oh, thanks. Uh, that was really helpful. So I... <laughs> I think there's a little bit of an element of kind of you get what you pay for here. Mm -hmm. And if your expectations are equal to what you paid for it, then, you know, then you're going to be pretty happy. But if your expectations are the same for a, you know, a $15 item as they would be a $150 item, then then 
you're going to get a way different level of service and things like that. So I think that's where I'm a little bit struggling with some of this low end stuff. I mean, for, for my personal stuff, I mean, we both said we, neither of us had bought any of this, you know, prices like that give me pause because I wonder, you know, what, what is the business model here? What are they putting in, into the devices? I get it on the Amazon side that I understand, you know, Amazon, because they own the marketplace can charge ridiculously low prices because they don't have anybody else in the food chain. (laughs) I think wise has taken this approach a little bit. Some of their stuff is on Amazon. um, Not all of it. And I think that's probably for some of that reasons that one of their models was I'm going to sell direct to the consumer at a super low price. There's nobody else taking off bites, you know, in that food chain. And so we can we can sell at super duper cheap prices. And Wise does something that they get a lot of flack for, but I think it's actually a pretty smart model. And some other vendors have started doing this, too, where their pricing in retail, if you, for example, see a wise camera at your local Home Depot, and their pricing online in stores like Amazon is different than if you would buy it directly from them. There are additional costs there, so they increase the price for those outlets to accommodate for the uh, you know for the middlemen for the shipping and everything else that they have to deal with when they're working with someone else rather than doing direct sales and when you're pinging your cost down to their lowest possible margin to get those low price tags i think that's a smart move I, I don't see how they could do business in those chains otherwise. I'm so it, <laughs> right. it's it it has to be done that way. And that's not how most people do it. Most people would sell the same price as the big box on their site and when you buy it direct from them, they just make more money, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think, you know, the same as kind of what we were saying for for IKEA applies for as, you know, Amazon and Wise and some of these others. You know they're they're not selling through anybody but themselves, so they can they can charge that lower price. I think what sticks out for me with IKEA is that they actually did HomeKit. Usually in these other lower priced devices, you don't see people doing HomeKit because it requires a lot more work and it's a lot more burden and engineering and things like that. And there's a cost that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I've seen people asking wise before if they're going to support it and they, they kind of say, yeah, it's on our roadmap kind of thing. But I think that's why you don't see that in some of these lower cost uh, items. Yeah, I can see that. Now, Ikea's system is built kind of as hub and spoke, right? They have a hub product that then everything connects to. So their hardware expense associated with HomeKit is only one time. But as you've mentioned before, every device that connects to that hardware then has to be certified as working properly with HomeKit. So uh, there, even every new device, even though it doesn't necessarily have a HomeKit chip in it, does have 
additional burden associated with it that you somehow have to pay for. Right. And then I guess that's a good point on the IKEA side, too, that and even this probably applies to the ring security system stuff, too. When you go outside of Wi-Fi or other chipsets, if you can use a proprietary radio that's not as uh, expensive, then you can lower your costs for your devices because you're not having to put a high end radio in every single device. Right. Right. And yeah, yeah, that that, that makes sense. Now. Interestingly, Amazon and IKEA, those are really, you know, store brands for all intents and purposes. And other companies have tried to do store brands as well. There have been connected versions of some of the exclusive brands to uh, stores like Home Depot, for example, big box stores. Those haven't really done that well. In fact, one brand that comes to mind is Best Buy's Insignia Connect line, which they've decided to disconnect. <laughs> They're basically turning off the services that supported their smart home products under the Insignia brand. So the other thing that you need to think about, I think, if you're buying inexpensive brands, is to consider if these are products that require services to work, like they have an app, they have to have that app, they require some sort of online support or online cloud service from the manufacturer to control or to schedule or what have you. If that company goes under, or if the company decides to no longer make or support those products, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, but if they're cheap devices... You know, do you really care? <laughs> well, I I would argue that you care. You probably care less than, right. say, I don't know, if it was a $700 juicer. Right. But I think even like that Insignia Connect, they had that technology in like some bigger appliances and stuff like that, too. So it wasn't just low cost, you know, plugs and that kind of stuff that they pulled the plug on, literally. That's that's true, but the good news is your freezer is still going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one I wanted to touch on here, too, is, you know, if you go on Amazon and search for smart plugs or, or whatever, you will find a slew of brands whose names you don't even recognize offering super cheap stuff. And usually that super cheap stuff supports the Amazon Assistant and Google Assistant. And... That always feels a little sketchy to me. I was literally looking at something the other day where they were selling four smart plugs for $30. Just insanely cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, my mind for that, you know, if if that's good with you and you just want something cheap that might work, I don't know that I always trust kind of these companies, though, in terms of security model. I don't know where their cloud is. I don't know... Same thing you were saying, like if they're going to pull the plug later, um, you know, all that kind of stuff or how reliable it's going to be either. So that's a case where I definitely feel like you get what you pay for. And I just don't trust some of those those types of devices. Yeah, I would agree with you in that. I have never been a big fan of trying to find the cheapest bulb or the cheapest widget 
in any category. Yet, I know that we have many listeners on Home On, for example, that talk about, oh, how come you never mention, say, you know, like Kugik or some of these other somewhat known brands that are manufactured and based usually in China, but in other countries and really competing on price. And a lot of it, a lot of it is that I worry about many things there. So I don't want to get people excited about those products necessarily if I don't even trust them myself. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think as a company, we've done a few, I'll call rescue operations that come from companies with, with good intentions that, that partner up with overseas you know, agencies and there's, I'm not going to name names, but there, there's a couple companies that'll do everything for you. They'll, they'll build your hardware. They'll support the cloud. They'll give you an app. They'll do everything. And it sounds great. And, and I think some naive companies say, all right, great. You know, the, the price is right. It includes everything. I can get my connected product done and, and done cheaply only to realize later that they have no control over any aspect of the experience and when they want, you know, and that it doesn't necessarily work well all the time when they want to make changes or they want to tweak something. It's not, the model isn't set up for that. The model's set for just cranking out product and uh, the experience being what the experience may be and slapping a logo on a generic app and calling it a day. And so I've seen enough of that now that of people that are like, you know, help us, help us, you know, get out of this situation that, you know, it it gives me a little bit of pause about some of this stuff that's going on overseas. Well, and I think that you could have that experience or, or see that happen with any company necessarily. I mean, particularly with startups. I think a lot of the challenge that we see, for example, with stuff that gets funded on crowdsourced sites yes, is that the companies really have no idea what it takes to make product. So they put together these business models and this pricing without really understanding that, no kidding, you're probably going to make a trip overseas and spend a week or two of your time, of you, of multiple people's time in your organization and some vendor's time tweaking the look and feel and weight and, and various other attributes of the box that this thing gets shipped in. I mean, every little thing needs to be thought out and decided upon and, uh, you know, done in a way that reinforces your brand. And it takes a lot more than most companies understand. And that's, again, one of the reasons why on Home On, I won't even cover stuff on Kickstarter unless it's from an already established company that I have faith in. Yeah. And I mean, in, in my experience of dealing with that kind of stuff, if... Anything you leave without 
holding hands on those details, they will cut corners wherever possible because that's how they make money. They, they're, they're cutting corners wherever they can and they're going to do it the easiest way, the cheapest way. And, you know, and that's, that's just the model of, of, you know, some of those companies and manufacturers and, and to what you said, that's why I will not back hardware Kickstarters anymore. I lost enough money from a few, things that i just said you know if it's if this is so great it'll still be great when they release it and i don't care if i save a little money by backing it now i'll i'll buy it at full price when it comes out i am currently still awaiting a connected alarm clock that is now invalidated by my nest hub that sits next to my or sits on my nightstand. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. But my point, a lot of my point there is that companies just don't understand what it takes and that's why they might end up failing or then things end up costing more than they expected to or they just can't sustain it and they can't support it and can't keep on releasing product because their model didn't account for the fact that, oh, you mean now I have a product I have to care and feed it? You mean I can't just drop and leave it? And forget about it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Now, I, I think one of the things, though, is that when, when we saw, for example, I always go back to the Nest thermostat. When we saw the Nest thermostat come out for $250 and everybody balked at that, and then everybody went out and bought one, um, I, I think it kind of broke a barrier in people's minds a little bit that, okay, well, this stuff is going to be a premium price potentially. And, and then I started to see so many products come out, so many copycat type products or other products in categories that already had expensive products in them. And it got harder and harder for me to justify as time goes on and products become commoditized new vendors still charging $250 for a connected thermostat. So one of the things that I think is good is that we're seeing some prices come down and maybe some of these disruptors are starting to cause other companies to rethink how they price stuff. And, and a good example just happened earlier this week, actually, the week that we're recording where Google announced that it was lowering and simplifying its Nest Aware pricing that it uses with to support Nest cameras and other now other Nest devices. And surely that's the result of Ring pricing their monitoring so inexpensively. Right. Well, and something like that, like the, the video storage, feels like more of an apples to apples kind of thing that... You can compare between two companies and say, well, you know, I can get whatever, 100 hours here and it costs me X and 100 hours over here and it's X plus, you know, five more dollars a month. So I definitely agree with you there. And I think some of this has driven the market down or caused people like Nest to give a lower priced offering where you're not going to get the same premium experience that they're going to, you know, differentiate the product and but still compete at, on the lower end of the product. So 
in terms of the stuff I buy, you know, my, my father had this saying, which was you never regret buying the best, even if you don't necessarily like what you paid for it. And that philosophy has cost me a lot of money over my lifetime and probably will, (laughs) will continue to. But I think that's what that says to me is I think the best example I can think of in in my smart home would be like the Lutron Cassetta lights uh, and light Mm -hmm. switches. Are there cheaper light switches? Absolutely. I have some of them in my wall and they don't work. (laughs) You know, is Lutron probably making a, a, a premium at $50 a light switch? Yeah, probably. But is it reliable as hell and, uh, you know, and solid. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to continue to put in my house elsewhere in the house. Or, you know, if I ever decide to go crazy, maybe I'll move up a tier in, in their stuff. But, you know, I think that's what comes a little bit with the premium stuff is the reliability, the, you know, the service, um, and those kinds of expectations. And that's part of what I just don't, I don't trust on the low end of things today. So one of the things that I always think of when I'm buying a computer is very similar to what you were just saying. When I buy a new computer, I always overpower it. I always want to get a computer that's a little bit more than I need and that I know I need because I want it to last as long as possible. And I don't want to regret my decision. And that's always done well by me. But again, with the exception of a very few number, a a very small number of brands like Apple, and, and perhaps HP and some others, PCs have basically been this like race to the bottom on hardware, kind of like televisions. Yeah. And so that worries me a little bit because I I wonder if companies believe that they have to compete with these ultra, ultra low price devices when in fact they have a better offering altogether. Yeah. I mean, I would argue in the example of TVs though, there's a good, there's a good differentiation between, you know, the super low price stuff in terms of the quality of display and stuff like that. And what you get at a, a premium. And I think there exists a room for different tiers of devices in this market. But, I mean, that pressure is definitely there to to lower prices of devices. I mean, trust me, as a, a manufacturer in this space, I hear about it uh, when we're, we're not, you know, at the, the cheapest price. But I don't know. I, I don't know where we're going to go from this. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I I think that we're going to continue to see pricing all over the place, quite frankly, because I I think there is a market on the higher end, a market on the lower end. I think the question is, what does the average consumer expect? It's been widely known that smart home tech hasn't picked up for the average consumer the way many people thought that it would. And one of those reasons is certainly pricing. I would argue it has more to do with complexity and confusion in the market and stuff like that. But pricing is definitely a factor there. So if prices can come down and maybe, just maybe, kind of act as a gateway drug to getting people's foot in the door, and then they have an opportunity to see 
other products. The, the risk, of course, is that if they have a bad experience first, right. are they going to be willing to then invest more money in better products? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap up our low-cost discussion. So let's take a quick break. If we have a sponsor this week, this is where you're going to hear them, and we'll be right back. The next part we wanted to dive into a little bit about what breaks down the cost of a smart home device. So, you know, as a manufacturer of smart home devices, I wanted to shed a little bit of light over, you know, when we price something out and what what goes into that and, and what are all the things that manufacturers are thinking about. Depending on where you sit in if you're just a user or or where you are in this in this space, you you may not be very aware of all these things that that come into play. So, I wanted to talk through some of this. So I think the first one we touched on a little bit already is the cost of components. Depending on what is in your device is going to to determine the cost. As a company, our our parent company, GridConnect, has been selling Wi-Fi for like 10, 15 years now you know, Wi-Fi components. And the price of a Wi-Fi component when Grid Connect started in 2003 was like $150 hmm. to put Wi-Fi in something. And we've seen the price of Wi-Fi, you know, modules and things like that go from that $150 to now, you know, depending on what you get can be, you know, less than 50 cents. Wow. That's that's huge. I mean, that's that's been a huge trend there. But as I've looked at technologies for for other ideas I've had or things like that, some of this comes down to in what volumes are these things being sold? Because you can have the greatest piece of technology, but if it's not being sold in volume, then the components are going to be way too high a cost to be, you know, put into a consumer product. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked a little bit about with the IKEA stuff that when they use a hub and other radios, they can lower the price of that. Um, you know, adding Wi-Fi for a long time, even a few years ago, you know, it was $10 to put Wi-Fi in a product. So that that drove a huge premium in Wi-Fi products. You know, Bluetooth stuff's a little bit cheaper. Some of these other radios are a little bit cheaper, but Definitely whatever you have in that device can can make a huge difference. Yeah, and we're talking just about Wi-Fi, but if you're building a smart product, you're going to have some form of radio, maybe multiple. You're going to have processing. You're going to have memory, potentially. You're, obviously, all of that is on some sort of silicon board. So by... You know, there there are there's a whole bunch that goes into this and that same model and kind of, you know, business thinking needs to go into each one of those pieces. Right. And, uh, you know, with that, depending on what those radios are, you're going to have to certify that with the FCC if you're going to be sold in the U.S. HomeKit stuff requires Wi-Fi certification. So... Not only do you have to pay to be a member of the Wi-Fi Alliance, which costs 
you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a year. Um, but you also have to pay to certify those devices. Um, you also have to go through certification labs for things like UL, a number of different things. A lot of your, you know, let's go home kit, that kind of stuff now is going through certification labs. Got to pay for all of those. So those, those things go into the price of the product because you, you got to pay to go through that. And that gets ultimately passed on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, all right, you got components and things like that. You also have to pay for labor. And, you know, I don't want to get into politics of, uh, you know, world economy and where things are built, but depending on where you build products, those labor costs are, are a part of it. And we're entering an era where a lot of things can be more automated and you can build more with machines and things like that. But, you know, somebody, there are humans involved in the manufacturing process, no matter, you know, what you're doing. And there are costs to that, for sure. And kind of in that same vein, you know, this has come up a lot in the last year. Um, but here in the U.S., we've seen a, a bunch of tariffs thrown on things, you know, coming from China. So that old model of, uh, you know, stuff being built in China is now being slapped with, in some cases, like a 25% tariff. And how tariffs work is it's not it's not the country that pays for it it's it's the company that ultimately pays for it and if the company's paying for it it's ultimately getting passed on to the consumer so you know depending on what what you're building and all that kind of stuff 25% if you're operating at super slim margins can p- put some people out of business I and mean, it, it just doesn't work in those models yeah that's that's huge now the one thing that I have seen companies do is, and certainly, you know, a startup wouldn't necessarily be able to be this nimble, but I have seen larger companies start to diversify their overseas manufacturing a bit. That is absolutely happening in spades. So, I mean, you'd be surprised how quickly things are happening in, in that in that case. So, our in-wall product that is being built um, in the very near future is is going to be built in Mexico. It is not going to be built in Asia. Uh, it, it did not. I would have loved to build it in the U.S., but it also the way that the tariff system works, we would get tariffed on all the components of the products coming from overseas. So it actually is cheaper to build the product in Mexico and bring it in on NAFTA stuff. Mm-hmm. Then it is it is to do it in the U.S. So it, it's a little bit backwards in in terms of that because I'd rather build it here if we could, but the economics just don't work at this point. Sure, sure. The other one I wanted to touch on is cloud. So you know everybody expects certain experiences with these products, and you know one of those is they wanted to work with Amazon, they wanted to work with Google. And uh, they want it to work when they're outside of their house. And that requires some sort of cloud infrastructure backend. And that's that stuff isn't free. It's becoming more and more economic. Folks, like, we're, we're huge into AWS, and, and we're doing a lot of our backend there. And, you know, they continue to do, you know, things to be aggressive with the pricing on, on cloud infrastructure and cut those costs regularly. But there is a cost to those things and, and to keeping the lights on. And when you manufacture a product, you have to consider what the, what the price of 
maintaining that cloud infrastructure for that product is going to be over the lifetime of the product. And when you're considering that, it's not just what you're paying the vendor to operate it, like your monthly bill with Amazon for AWS. It's also the resources that you might put toward it or any additional services that you may need from them to continue to support things. And an example, uh, you know, I, I think a really good example it right now is that <clears throat> we're seeing a lot of software on Mac computers not working because it doesn't work in the 64-bit environment that the new Macintosh, Macintosh, the new Mac OS requires. And while this isn't a cloud-based thing, the reality is that if you have software out there, whether it's on the cloud or on a desktop or on a device, things will happen over time that will require you to upgrade them. And that is true even if your software runs all on the cloud, even if you don't plan on ever making changes or improvements, which you should be planning, right? There, it's very likely that there are some upgrades that Amazon could make to its cloud structure that's going to require some engineering time from you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good point. And the expectation with connected products is that they will get better over time, right. that you will continue to update them and support them. And that comes at a cost. You know, I got to support an engineering team that's going to keep those products getting better and keep them reliable and make improvements to them and things like that. And so you got to sell profitable products to pay for an engineering team of, of talented individuals to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. You know, the next thing I wanted to talk about was security also. You know, we talked about some of those no-name brands on Amazon and things like that, and, and this being an area of concern. It, it really stood out to me in some of the stuff that Amazon introduced, and I think that we're going to see this as more of a trend, is that companies are requiring people to do security audits and things like that. This is something, you know, we do as a company and, and work with other vendors and things like that to do audits. But I feel like there's going to continue to be pressure because, you know, there are these stories that people hear about, you know, I bought something off Amazon and now all of a sudden somebody's yelling at my kid through a, you know, baby monitor that I bought. Mm -hmm. yep. So, you know, these security incidents, you know, make it so you got to take it seriously. And, you know, for us, one of the things we've done to even tighten security is we've added a, a hardware encryption chip to uh, our new products to make it even more secure in a number of different ways. So, and, you know, that component costs money. So, you know, the, the people that are going to take security really seriously, there, there's definitely a cost to that. The next thing we hit on a little bit when we were talking about some of the different retailers is that when you're selling a product in retail, there are many mouths to feed on the path to retail. <laughs> so, you know, you've got your, your costs. Often retailers make you go through distribution. So distributors are going to take a piece. Usually it's a small chunk. 
And then the retailer themselves usually take a, a pretty sizable chunk. I, I think most people would be surprised if, if they really saw what, what retail markups were. And some of that comes from the retailer is using that for marketing costs and advertising and all kinds of things and operations and, you know, all, all those kinds of things. And they also have to make a profit, too. So, you know, even Amazon, who used to offer, operate on pretty thin margins, now commands, you know, pretty decent sized retail markup um, as part of that. And, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that with that, with the pricing strategy, right? Like when, when you're coming out with a product and coming out with a pricing strategy for it, if you plan on going into retail and you don't want to have this kind of bifurcated pricing strategy where you have one price on your direct-to-consumer sales from your website and another price in retail, realistically, when you're coming up with a pricing strategy, you're probably thinking, what's the manufacturer's suggested retail price? Yes. And so you have to build all of that into that number. Absolutely. Yeah, you you definitely do. And I'm even surprised that some of those companies can get away with two different prices because a lot of the retailers won't let you do that. Whatever you're advertising with them, you know, they must have had to do a special agreement or something. But most people, whatever you advertise with them, it is what they want the price to be for them as well. So, uh, and what you sell on your own site. And and in fact, Amazon is known for, if you all of a sudden drop your price on your own site, they'll just match it and charge you the difference. So, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff that goes on there and, um, and rules about all that kind of stuff and, and how you price things. So, but absolutely it's something you have to plan from the beginning when you're pricing something and, and make sure you have enough, all the way across that food chain for everybody to to get their piece. The next thing I wanted to hit on here was just marketing costs. Uh, I mean, I think one of the huge differences between some of the mega brands like Ring, like Nest, and things like that are, are the the money they're spending on on marketing, and mm-hmm. that's the packaging you see, the design, the ads, the commercials. You know, Shaq hawking doorbells and. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. The you know the players that have been most successful in this space are spending a significant amount of money on, on marketing, and that goes back into you know the price of product and and everything. So there has to be room in there to you know because if nobody knows about the stuff, then it's not just going to market itself. And that's not just something that you can always do yourself. Absolutely, even if. You're just going to say do online marketing campaigns somehow. You very likely need to work with some sort of agency to either help you produce a video or to maybe do the artwork for display ads or, you know, whatever approach that is. If you're looking at doing anything more significant than that, then you're probably also looking at the price of engaging a PR agency of some sort. Yep. Yeah. I was going to mention PR too. Yeah. I mean, that, that comes at a cost too, especially good or bigger ones. 
you know, that's a, a, a sizable cost. And so while usually that press that you get from, you know, somebody covering you doesn't cost anything, there's a lot of money and time and energy that goes into getting those relationships and, and getting them product and going through all of that to get to where they write an article about you. So yeah, that, that basically wraps up kind of my, my thoughts on some of the drivers of the cost. I'm sure I forgot something along the, the way here, but, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's all to say it's not free to, to build this stuff and, and there's a lot that goes into it. And so, you know, while I know everybody wants stuff to be as cheap as possible, you know, the, there's a lot of bills to pay in building a in building a smart home product too and you know i guess the last thing i'll touch on too is all of this stuff flexes with volume too right so right. you know the the folks that are operating at super high volumes can get the lowest cost on components can get the the best price for manufacturing and labor so that plays a huge factor in as well. And it could be tough as a smaller player to break in at, you know, at lower and competitive prices because you, you got to ramp up those quantities for sure. Well, yeah. And, and each of these added layers, like the, the cost of manufacturing, the cost of your cloud services, the cost of, the security audit, the cost of your um, marketing, even though some of those things may go up as volume goes up, the overall cost of each one of those per unit goes down pretty significantly as those numbers go up. So that that puts the large companies like Amazon and Google and um, I was going to say Microsoft, but they continue to fail in this space. Uh, and and others that are playing in the smart home space a real advantage over the small guy. And so, you know, I look at, for example, I, I have a product that has a bridge that allows me to control some Bluetooth devices in its ecosystem over an app through Wi-Fi remotely. So that bridge basically connects the Bluetooth and the Wi-Fi. This this particular problem is a problem that so many companies have tried to solve, and and partly because of Bluetooth, it's not something that can be solved universally. Right. So every company kind of has its own bridge. If you're a small company, the the example that I'm thinking of, their bridge costs. from Samsung, I can buy a SmartThings hub that controls Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and Zigbee and ClearConnect and Z-Wave and anything else that's IP-based in the home for $70. And it's the scale. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, this is a complicated thing. Pricing is very hard. You need to hit the sweet spot for consumers. I'm not convinced those low, low prices are necessary. But uh, if anybody wonders why it takes, you know, 
why products cost as much as they do and why some of these cheaper products may or may not live up, up to expectations. Hopefully this was a little bit uh, helpful for you in understanding that. All right, well, let's uh, wrap up with a question from one of our listeners. And I'm going to start this question by apologizing. Gregory was the first person to leave a question for us on Twitter using the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow, and we completely missed it. I know. So here we are. We're finally catching up. Gregory asks, I've got 50 plus 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi smart devices. Most of them TP-Link. So I'm assuming he's talking about the Casa smart system. He says, my brand new Asus routers limit is 25. I'm using old routers as access points to handle the load, but I still have periodic network issues. How do I handle this? Is mesh Wi-Fi any better at this? So first off, I, I don't think I've ever had a router that explicitly imposed a limit on me. Yeah. I've just had routers that don't work very well. <laughs> and maybe that's the problem. Well, maybe that is. And maybe what Asus is trying to do is to ensure a certain amount of um, you know, good experience with their product by limiting it. But then if you're then bridging through other access points, maybe that's that's what could be causing the problem. I, the question that he has, though, is is mesh better? And I'd love to say yes, yes, yes. But I think, I don't know what your experience is, Adam. I think the more realistic answer is sometimes, <laughs> and it depends. Yeah, I mean, I think this is always a hard problem. I think it. my general answer would be in general, yes, mesh Wi-Fi helps with this, partially because I, I'm an Eero fan, and that's what I've used. And in putting multiple Eros throughout my house, each Eero node can handle a section of those devices. So I was mm -hmm. just pulling out my phone here. So I've got roughly 56 devices. That's when I'm not home. So... We'll say 60 plus um, on a regular basis. Now, they're not all smart home devices. Some of them are probably tablets and phones and streaming devices and stuff like that, right? Yeah, that's Wi-Fi devices total. And we have relatively few issues in, in our home of, of devices staying online. You know, obviously, there are two pieces to this puzzle, which is the device side and the AP side. Um, and at some point the devices can be a part of the issue. I don't have a ton of experience with, with TP link stuff, but depending on how well it's written and the networking stack and all that kind of stuff, some of these devices have pro definitely have problems staying on Wi-Fi, And I have some of those too. And I can tell you for sure in, in those cases, those are the, you know, in my case of the problems I've had, it's the device, not the router. 
because um, other stuff has no issues. And, and some in some cases, they're right next to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, it's my understanding that the TP-Link stuff is pretty good with this. There certainly have been brands that are kind of notorious for not staying online. I know I've had some iHome stuff that has uh, that typically falls off my network and, and reconnects a lot. There are a bunch of other devices, particularly early generation. Like if a product is putting out a connected device for the first time with Wi-Fi, it, it's their first product. Yeah. I mean, inevitably, you're going to experience some problems. And that's one of the reasons why you see companies rev their first-gen product so often without a whole lot of change is just to put it out with better hardware in it. Yeah. No, I can I can attest to that as a company that did that. <laughs> and then the, the other thing to consider is that some products, and most smart products are getting better at this, but again, certainly in initial release with many products, there have been problems with smart products not being able to handle mesh Wi-Fi because they see it as separate nodes and and don't know how to connect to one or the other and and pass between them and such. So that's something that I would research a little bit. Now, looking at TP-Link specifically, I noticed that they have a pretty good track record with Wi-Fi mesh systems. They work well with Google uh, Google's Wi-Fi. I believe they uh, work pretty well with Eero and Interestingly enough, TP-Link, which really started in networking, has some uh, mesh networking solution of its own as well. Yeah, I think what what jumped out at me about what Gregory was asking is that he was pairing his brand new Asus router with a bunch of old routers, probably from different brands, different networking stacks, things like that. This, to me, is probably part of your problem. Mm-hmm. And where a mesh system is going to even routers from the same manufacturer would probably work better than this. When you're combining different routers from different manufacturers, that seems like a recipe for disaster to me. And, you know, you'd have to have the settings just right so that, you know, one is acting as the router. Um, if you have multiple that have the router capabilities turned on, that's going to be a networking nightmare. Um, I believe that's called being double natted and you can have all kinds of networking issues with that. So in general, where a, where a mesh system is going to work better is that each of the, each of the nodes is designed to work with each other and to pass off devices and, uh, and kind of handle that all in harmony. Whereas this type of setup that that he describes to me, I can see where there would be issues. Yep. Yep. So anyway, thank you for your question. And again, Gregory, we are sorry we took so long to answer it. Yes. And if you have a smart home question for us, send it our way with the hashtag Ask Smart Home Show. And I will say I appreciate listeners for kind of responding to our call of uh, we need more questions. Um, so keep those coming, and uh, and we'll try to pick a question or two to include in each show. All right, Adam. This is the part where we say goodbye to each other and to our audience. But before we do that, how can people find you out on the Internet? 
Sure. Uh, you can find everything my company's doing at connectsense.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice. How about you, Richard? You can find me on Twitter at Richard Gunther. And you can find any of my writing or other shows on the digitalmediazone.com. And I hardly ever talk about this other show that I do, but I have to just give a little bit of a pimp here for us just releasing our 500th episode of Entertainment 2.0, which is a show about enjoying digital media in your home and on the go. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. That it's it's kind of amazing to think about that. So anyway, if you want to find all of the episodes of this show, and it's more like 12 or so from us so far, <laughs> you can find those at smarthome.fm. And we also post show notes there with any links that we've mentioned during the show. And all of those episodes are available, as well as a link to the legacy episodes hosted by Mike Wolf. You can also find us in Apple Podcasts, in Overcast, and everywhere you find your other podcasts. And do us a favor while you're listening. Leave us a rating or a review and tell your friends about the show. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>